And the last thing I'll say that's far more applicable to the new normal that we're in now is I, I'm tired of the term online learning. And every time I get a soapbox, I am advocating that we begin referring to it as learning online. Because in it, it's mm-hmm. very phrasing in online learning. It's the online that comes first. And that couldn't be any further from the truth. We need to apply our training as educators to figure out what our students need to learn from us. That's priority number one. And then we figure out how to accomplish that online. So I, I just hope that we all embrace a learning online philosophy. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of CELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelep. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. The pandemic has turned nearly everything on its head beginning in the spring for colleges and universities in particular. Beginning in March and with several weeks still to go in the semester, just about every institution shut down, leaving students with few options other than to finish their courses online from their bedrooms or wherever they could find a place to study. Activities were disrupted and faculty had to quickly pivot their courses to online delivery. There was still considerable uncertainty about how colleges and universities are going to make it through the fall semester. Um, anybody who reads the Chronicle of Higher Ed or other, um, other news uh, knows that many institutions are pivoting from the plans they had originally put in place. And it's, any, it's anybody's guess how we're going to end this semester. I'm so pleased to be joined for this episode by two master educators who have been teaching through the disruption And I look forward to hearing their insights about how it's going, what they have each learned from this experience, and what we all need to consider from the perspective of those in the trenches as we navigate through this era of great unpredictability in the history of higher education. So my guests today are Dr. Jennifer Stratton, who's a professor of education, and Dr. Tom Manella, Professor of Biology and Director of the Graduate Program in Applied Laboratory Science and Operations, both of whom uh, teach work at Baypath University, an institution in Western Massachusetts. So welcome to the podcast, Jen and Tom. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, thank you. So I always start these interviews by asking our guests to share something about their professional journey. And I know each of you have a very interesting journey. So uh, can you tell us how you found your way to a career as a college educator? And Jen, maybe we can start with you. Okay, sure. Um, so I had no plans to be an educator. <laughs> so I should start with that. I was actually going into sports medicine. I loved sciences. Um, however, uh, due to a family tragedy while I was in, in college, uh, my father dying in a trucking accident, um, it was a professor, my English professor, who showed up at the wake and um, kind of threw me a lifeline, books, 
and teaching. And um, he helped me make sure I didn't drop out. I was a first generation college student who was trying to navigate the world by herself until I found him and the books and um, and really realized that through education, I could save myself. And when I found the power of that, I then decided I was going to pay it forward. So after that, I switched to English, focused on education, and then just continued. The most, I think the what's so interesting was my first full-time professor uh, position was at the institution that I had to leave where he guided me. Um, I actually had to leave due to financial reason, hardships, but um, returned never graduating, but had returned as a professor and got to actually, my first graduation as a professor, I got to walk down the aisle with him to mm -hmm. that commencement. So it was pretty, pretty amazing journey. Um, and, but I think maybe not atypical of some of the challenges that first generation college students face. Mm, boy, and so you are now at Bay Path. You've been at Bay Path for how long? Um, this, I'm going into my third year at Bay Path. Okay, and just tell us a little bit about what you teach. Sure, I teach um, pre-service teachers. So I, um, I've now focused in on, I, I am an elementary multicultural education early um, and early literacy development are really my areas of expertise. So I teach pre-service teachers who are going to become uh, early childhood or elementary educators. And, um, and I focus, I run the programming for our undergraduate education program. Mm, boy, what incredible experience and a story <laughs> to bring to your work with aspiring educators. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody could have could have said it better in terms of the power of uh, teaching um, in the lives of others. So thank you for thank you for sharing that. Tom, how about how about you? Yeah, so I went into the sciences as an undergrad because I just love science as a as a student. And I was a fairly young college grad, uh, young enough and thankfully a little bit wise enough to realize that I was too young to make permanent plans for my future. So I decided to go to graduate school just to buy myself a little bit more time and figure out what I wanted to be uh, and fell into the preordained track of a scientist, you know, pursuing a doctorate. There's a, a fairly rigid pathway to become a scientist. And uh, I went on to become a postdoc after I got my doctorate, kind of a middling scientist working in, a, in another person's lab and discovered that I was not a good scientist at all. <laughs> it didn't bring me much joy and I, I really wasn't uh, all that gifted in the area. When I did a little bit of self-reflection to try to figure out what next, I realized that what I truly enjoyed as a graduate student was all of my time as a teaching assistant, as a TA. I got a lot of satisfaction out of explaining things to undergraduates. They seemed to understand fairly readily from me. And in talking it over with my fiance at the time, now my wife, uh, we came to realize I should pursue my passion, pursue my inherent strengths and, and gravitate more towards teaching. So I, I obtained a second postdoc that was a, a half-time scientist, half-time teaching instructor, college instructor position. Uh, fell in love with teaching all over again. And since then, I've just been trying to become more and more focused on undergraduate education and less and less focused on research on the applied sciences. So, and what do you teach? What are you teaching these days? So I teach everything from undergraduate courses all the way to graduate instruction. Um, my lowest course or most junior course I teach is uh, full semester genetics to sophomores. I teach upper level science courses, both uh, hardcore science such as molecular biology and more of the softer skills such as bioethics. And then as you mentioned, Melissa, in the intro, I, I direct the master's program here at Bay Path where we have an applied uh, vocational program essentially to get our graduates well-trained for today's jobs in the bioscience sector and chemical sector. So you teach really complicated. I'm not a science person. So when I, when I hear the, uh, the courses, the course names that you teach, I'm always a bit in awe because um, it's, comp it, it's really complicated stuff. And thank heavens, there are people like you who have a gift for making the complicated simple um, in your teaching. So thank heavens you recognized that and followed your passion into teaching. I, I know in both of your cases, many, many students 
um, have been impacted uh, because of your gifts um, as educators. So like college and university faculty around the globe, you each found yourself having to pivot your teaching and your professional duties in the spring. What was that like for each of you? And what kind of specific changes did you need to make then and continuing into the fall um, to accommodate the crisis and meet your students' learning needs? Tom, maybe we'll start with you on this one. So I had an ace up my sleeve, thankfully enough, uh, many years ago in my pursuits to embed active learning into my science courses, I fell upon flipped learning. At the time, flipped learning was just gaining traction in K-12 and, and really wasn't a thing in higher ed much at all. But I saw the potential to free up a great deal of class time for active learning strategies by moving much of the passive instruction uh, as pre-work that students would do at home online. So when the pandemic really started growing, especially here in our area in New England, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and began laying groundwork just in case we did move online and realized that a great deal of my instruction was already there in YouTube videos and things like that because of the flipped learning format. So then my first priority became how do I adapt the active learning activities that we were doing in the classroom to an online environment as well. And that did take a little bit of tweaking and a great deal of modeling for the students, I'll, I'll say. But um, being a little bit proactive and, and having that flipped learning under my belt and, and a great deal of my instruction online was a major help to me in making the transition. Mm. Jennifer, how about you? Yes, I didn't have the same ace up my sleeve, but I did have a few tricks in my bag. <laughs> and um, so I also had been exploring different ways of teaching. So I was teaching courses face-to-face -face in a hybrid format and fully online. Um, in all those different formats though, my um, I always stayed very student-centered and culturally relevant. And when I use those best practices in any format, you find you increase student success. Um, so I just stayed true to those um, best practices. I think the biggest challenge I faced was that working with pre-service teachers, there's um, students need to do observations, field work, or um, practicum experiences. And when the pandemic hit, it actually closed all the schools. So now we had students who were supposed to be engaged in experiential learning, but they had no place to do it. So um, for me, the biggest pivot was a concern about them having that experience. So my pivot involved the students and that involved creating a virtual school. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, kind of using social media tools, um, invited students, um, well, parents um, to enroll their children in grades three through six in a virtual school that myself and the students created where they could then practice all that they had been learning learning in the classroom. And you called this the Stratton School? I right? did because I couldn't think of any other name. <laughs> That's all. I would never name a school after myself. Oh, no, no, well deserved. I, I was like, so I, I hadn't, to be honest, I had had very little sleep. Um, and I thought of the idea on a Sunday night and like kind of just went, ran with it. So I presented it. Uh, it was over student break on a flight home from Florida. I thought of it. I had about three hours sleep, tried to start recruiting third through sixth graders and presented it to our students who are still on break on a Monday via email. Um, and then we believe it or not, we recruited uh, my own children helped teach all these families about Zoom from Tuesday and Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we opened our virtual school doors. Well, and I'm glad you called it the Stratton School. I think that's that's terrific. And I know that it went viral and was really, really well received. Um, so uh, were you surprised by the recognition that that and the extent to which people stepped up and really embraced it? Yes, <laughs> I was surprised and slightly terrified. Um, <laughs> but um, what the one thing I wasn't surprised with was our students, our, the way they stepped up. Um, it was filling a void for two groups of people. The void was for our students who had new skills that they wanted to use. And the other void was for these young children who lost everything um, in you know, they're 
and they needed a space. Both groups of people needed sp spaces to be seen and heard. And that's what the Stratton School created. Mm, boy, and both of these examples, flipped learning and uh, the way in which the Stratton School came about are wonderful examples of the creativity you both bring to your to your profession, but also um, your ability to, to really understand uh, your students' needs and then to bring a solution or to bring a new way of doing things um, into how you do your do your work as educators. And I think um, BayPath is very fortunate to have you both on the faculty uh, in that regard. So as you think about the experience uh, from the spring and now, um, any insights uh, from what you've been through or from watching your colleagues uh, in terms of how they've navigated these last few months, um, particularly things that have gone well and maybe things that didn't go so well, um, you know, that you've learned from? I think for me, so I really embraced the idea of universal design for learning. And so that's creating multiple modalities for students to kind of access the content and also for them to demonstrate their understanding of the content. Um, by And can I, can I, can I stop sure. you a second? So that for, for listeners who don't know what that is, um, can you give an example of how that actually works in your designing uh, the learning experience? Sure. So it's, um, it, I can tell you it's moving away from paper and pencil in some ways, right? So what it is, is, um, Creating multiple modalities for students to access the content means that you need to create multiple doorways um, for students to access their information. So that might mean that there's articles and journal articles and texts for them to read. It equally values videos for students to um, engage in, audiobooks. Um, so realizing that there's different entry points for students and providing all of those. So just like when you're walking into a building, there may be a ramp or a stairway and you can choose which way to enter. It's similar, creating that same type of um, access. And then once the students are engaging in the content, it's, well, how do they demonstrate their knowledge of it? And then once again, giving them multiple opportunities. That could be, be writing a more traditional, writing a paper, a research paper, but it could also be creating a movie that would then be used, for example, of how early literacy skills are developed that could be shared with families. Um, it could be creating um, other digital tools that you know, could be shared with their peers. Um, so for, for us in the Stratton School, a good example was the students were creating lesson plans, collaborating, sharing them with each other, and then teaching them. Um, so that, that's what I mean by the multiple modalities. So, and, and, and again, for somebody who's not an educator, why is that important? From your perspective? Well, I think it, it personalizes education, right? Which is, we all learn differently. The, our brains mm -hmm. um, learn differently and students need, and we process information differently. And by using universal design, it respects that space. It respects each student mm -hmm. and the way they engage in the world and the way they learn. Um, so it, you're really meeting them where they're at. Exactly. Is that, yeah. Okay. And then the assumption is that if you meet them where they're at, they will learn more effectively going forward. Is that is that part of the thinking? Or absolutely, um, they will they'll have greater success. And I think they'll they what I've noticed is they actually have a deeper understanding of the content. Mm, okay, yeah, that's pretty powerful. Tom, do you what anything you would add insights? Anything that didn't go well? Yeah, for sure. I think um, uh, what I lost sight of and what certainly became more pronounced in the online environment is that when we build a course or a curriculum for our students, we're essentially laying down a, a trail. Um, you know, I would analogize it to a, a trail maybe in a forest or something. And since we've laid that trail down, it's very, very obvious and apparent to us. But then when students get to the beginning of that same path, it's not nearly as clear to them the direction they should go in. Um, we have a window into the structure that we put in place 
they're naive to that structure. And so they need a little bit more coaching. So what I discovered, and, and one of the things that I just didn't do well at the beginning of the transition in the spring was that I needed to model for my students everything that they needed to do to be successful in my class. The technology, of course, even though they're digital natives, they're not instantly fluent with our LMS canvas or with the, our learning tools that we're implementing. But I also had to model uh, good citizenship in the class and, and solid engagement. So I was one of the engaged students in my own classroom, participating in the discussions, engaging with students one-on-one, -on -one, and again, just trying to passively model for the students how you make it through this, this trail and how you get from where we started to success at the end of the road. So I think uh, that's grace, that's patience, but proactive modeling is also critical in this new normal. Mm, boy, great, great insights. So let me ask you to flash forward now. Six months, are we six months into the pandemic? That doesn't seem possible. Um, and you have started the fall semester. Um, there's no sign, there's no, there's no hard evidence of uh, pandemic relief yet in sight, I think it's fair to say. So how are your courses going so far this fall? Did you do anything different as a result of what you learned in this? How did you prepare for this semester? And Tom, maybe maybe you could start us off this time. So going back to what I just said, I put a little bit more, uh, a few more bumpers on the sides of the trail so mm -hmm. students can't go down uh, blind alleys quite so far. And I guess the, just the other piece of it is a mindset. So I love my job. Uh, I, I love everything that I do professionally and personally. Teaching students brings me uh, as much joy as most other things in my life. I'm in this for real and my students are counting on me to teach them. So I had to get into the mindset that it's just gonna be a rough 15 weeks. Uh, this is not how we have been taught to teach. Uh, this is not necessarily how our students would ideally like to learn, but we're all gonna work a little bit harder, me as an instructor and my students as well, to get to the end goal with nothing lost or nothing sacrificed. And the end goal is their learning of the content. So it's gonna take a few more hours a week for sure. It's gonna be a little bit tougher and a little bit less sleep, but hey, I mean, that's okay. This is my job, this is my calling. And if that's what it takes, then that's what I'll do. So I think that mindset of just accepting that it's gonna to be tougher, but not forever, is a really important part of getting through. Mm, boy, that's good advice for all of us. <laughs> whether whether we're in the classroom or not, isn't it? Um, now, you're also teaching lab courses yes. this fall, right, in the grad program. Did you have to prepare differently, or are you doing anything differently? And are you, you did you learn anything about yourself uh, from whatever it is that you did? So one thing that more seasoned scientists can do nimbly is, um, and this comes with training, is shuffle aspects of an experiment. So to, to give an example, if something, if an experiment requires a, a one hour incubation where essentially that's hands off time, a very young scientist will start that and then go and catch up on their notebook or maybe read a paper and essentially not do anything uh, experimentally in that hour. A more seasoned scientist will shuffle. So when that hour incubation has begun, they begin another experiment. They get another ball in the air, so to speak. What I've had to, do in my lab course is fast track my students' mindset and get them comfortable with that kind of shuffling. Because essentially, with a hybrid format and half the class only coming into the lab every other week, we need to get two weeks worth of lab activities done in each one week meeting to make best use of that time. And so I've, I've, it's just been a lot more choreography in the lab to get them comfortable with that kind of multiple balls in the air, multiple experiments going at once uh, approach. And you're actually coming to campus in the lab with your yeah. students. So I just have to ask, do you, you feel safe? Yeah, I was recently speaking to my dean and, and I passed on to him. I, I feel very safe and in, in fact, almost too safe if, if such a thing is possible. I forget sometimes that I'm in the middle of a pandemic and it's tempting to take the mask off for a moment and get a breath of fresh air or to, um, you know, lapse in my sanitizing of my hands. So if anything, yes, I feel entirely safe on campus to the point where it almost feels so close to normal that I have to be conscious of telling myself pandemic is still going on here. You know, I still have to take all these extra precautions to keep myself and my students safe. 
for sure. But I, I think um, I think you were telling me previously, though, that you've split the labs in half so that you don't have your normal yep. size, uh, right? And That's right. And there's yeah. tape down on the floors in all the labs. Essentially, each okay. student has their own box. When one student is in a box, no other student is allowed in that box. And each box gives six feet of separation. So yeah, a lot of extra procedures to make sure that students have visual cues on how distant they need to remain from each other. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And and Jen, let me go back and, and ask you the same question about uh, how you've done things differently, if at all, this fall and uh, how you prepared. Now, are you teaching everything or all of your classes virtual? Um, yes, but in different types of formats. So I have one that's synchronous. So we meet Tuesday and Thursday mornings at 930 via Zoom. And then my two others are asynchronous online formats. Okay. Okay, and then are you, what about uh, students that are preparing for um, student teaching or in service? Uh, again, everything is, so you're not coming to campus at all and meeting your students in person, is that No, right? I am not. Okay, um, so did you do anything different based on what you spring when you prepared your courses this fall? I I did. I actually probably embrace technology more than I ever have. And what I mean by that is I actually realized that you can leverage technology to meet, to personalize learning more. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I hadn't thought of that before. Um, I'm uh, very engaged with communities with people with disabilities. And, um, and what I realized that you can actually use technology to give greater access for students who may have learning differences. So for example, I've, I'm videotaping a lot more and making sure I'm using closed caption. So therefore, um, so I just did like a weekly recap and I videotaped it. I had the slides available. I did closed caption. Um, so that is giving students more access to the information and letting them processes in time that they need. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm using more resources that are web-based. And what I, I'm actually pretty excited because some of the web resources have um, pre and post tests. So now I'm actually engaging, encouraging students to take a pre-test, you know, kind of understand what do you know about the content that you're about to engage in, set some goals based on that pre-test, now engage in the learning, take a post-test and then reflect on that. And then we're using some progress monitoring um, and that is something that, one, I've never had students engage in on themselves as learners, but it's certainly something I teach them to do with young learners. Mm. And um, to sort of have these tools available, I think they're going to have um, much greater success in the classroom. Mm, that's exciting. And I have to tell you, I was meeting with our learning design, uh, one of our learning designers yesterday for a course that I'm preparing um, for the doctoral program. Uh, that starts in a few weeks. And I wanted to use Flipgrid, mm -hmm. the tool yes. Flipgrid. And he brought up your class. And it yes, is Flipgrid, it is. right? Yeah. And he showed me all of the wonderful ways in which you are using Flipgrid to do just that. So um, I don't know if you know you're being used as a... <laughs> as example, but boy, it's exciting. So I'm, I'm actually learning from you and how you uh, have embedded that tool among others. Um, and I don't, I doubt that I'm the only one. So um, that's, I think that's, that's terrific. You like, I do. I didn't know that was being shared. So, um, <laughs> that's what, I, I, yeah, once again, it's slightly terrifying, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but what's so neat is I, the reason we did that was um, so the state has encouraged us to include more digital literacy in our preparation of pre-service teachers. So what I'm trying to do is integrate that more into my own teaching. So then mm -hmm. students are engaging um, various digital tools before they're ever in the classroom using them with students. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments 
and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Baypath University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Baypath University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. As you both know very, very well, faculty don't teach uh, in a bubble. Your experience in the classroom can be helped or hindered by a whole bunch of other things in the institution, including administrative support and the way in which administrators view uh, the role and the importance of faculty. There's a great deal of turmoil right now on campuses across the country. And again, I don't need to tell you that, um, you know, just from reading the Chronicle and uh, following the news, um, what's being reported is increased tension between the faculty and the administration as everything seems to be shifting. So I'm curious if you have any insights for college presidents, provosts, deans, about how they might best support their faculty who are in the trenches right now with our students. What do you, what do faculty most need to excel in meeting the needs of our learners in the classroom? I've often heard, you know, the uh, the expression applied to managing faculty of herding cats. And, um, you know, the part of that uh, I will certainly admit is, is true. You know, when you get a, a whole faculty of independent-minded critical thinkers who have been trained to be autonomous academics, they're, they're not easily managed. So, you know, there's some fairness in that expression. But also where that comes from, from the faculty perspective, is a celebration and tra tradition of autonomy in the classroom. So I think what sometimes happens in higher ed is that for a multitude of various reasons, administration will have a new initiative that they'd like to implement, but it's far too top-down and mandated. And there's a knee-jerk reaction on the part of some faculty because of that autonomy and that, that tradition of being independent as a faculty body. But then also we have to have an appreciation for the personal strengths that different instructors have. And new innovations and new implementations may play to the strengths of some instructors, but it may actually subtract from the strengths of others. Teaching is an art, it, it's a craft, and it often relies on inherent gifts and skills that different teachers bring to the table. And so the more we try to standardize effective instruction, the more we stifle the gifts of some while we might be promoting the gifts of others. So Melissa, it's, it's ironic that I'm answering this question to you, um, but I'm gonna use something that you did as a provost, as a model for what I think is the best way for uh, an administration to implement change on campus. Uh, a number of years ago, Baypath launched uh, an iPad initiative, and part of that was uh, professional development around how to integrate technology into the classroom and active learning. And uh, Melissa, I know you were integral in, in the implementation of that entire process. Uh, a team of remarkable professional development consultants were brought in to teach the faculty about tech and, and active learning, to give us the tools and seed our minds with ideas for how we could accomplish this in the classroom. 
And then we were asked to run with that. And that was it. And I felt a great deal of autonomy and freedom. I was able to leverage strengths that I have and to avoid weaknesses that I'm aware of. And everything that I described before about my journey with flipped learning is due entirely to that initiative. So I think that approach really is the most effective one. If an administration needs their faculty to move in a specific direction, fertilize the soil with options and tools and ideas, but then trust your faculty and their strengths and their gifts to run with that and to implement their autonomy in a very effective way to ultimately accomplish the initiative. Mm. Well, great, great insights. Um, Jen, what would you, what would you add to that or, um, any specific examples from your experience? Yeah, Tom, that was really well said, also eloquently. Um, I think for me, uh, the piece I would add is, well, one is I've never thought of myself as in a trench. I find the classroom a wildly inspiring space filled with opportunity. So I wanna make sure that administration sees that same space. Um, and then I think the most important piece would be that we need to listen to our students as well. Um, we need the students that will be coming to us, especially in the future years, coming years, right? They've now eventually have, will have gone through a pandemic that, you know, interrupted their learning. So what, um, what concerns, how will this impact our skill sets? higher ed may have to look very different for them. And then they're also going to expect it to look different. And it needs to look different. If they're going to solve some of the world problems that are ahead of them, we can't keep looking back and building on what's not working. So um, I think we need to take down the barriers that may be hindering our students and then the faculty who serve them. Mm -hmm. mm. And do you have any examples of how that might might be done or could be done? Um, here's a systemic one that I find challenging, and that would be regarding students who are transferring in or are trying or also decide to switch majors is kind of um, they get punished. You know, here they are. They're this young age. And maybe they think, like myself, right, went into sports medicine, never planned to go into teaching, um, but had a life-changing event that then I realized that I, I wanted to switch. Um, it cost me an academic year that financially I couldn't afford. That barrier, and I went to school a long time ago, <laughs> that barrier still exists. How can we not have learned that... <laughs> Um, so we need to, I think some of the systems we have in place um, penalize students who need to be encouraged to explore and um, maybe cross over into other. That's the other thing, too, is integrating our systems of study, because I think by having them isolated, maybe we won't be able to get to some of the solutions we need to. Mm, boy, that's a great, that's a great example. Um, yeah, I will say from my own experience as an administrator, um, it's very easy for administrators, and particularly the higher up you go in the institution, uh, to find yourself in a mm -hmm. bubble, um, just like faculty can sometimes find themselves in a bubble. And I think this notion of taking down the walls, whether it's between faculty and administration, um, or in other ways, is a really powerful a powerful notion because from my experience, the experience that the faculty member has in the classroom is so incredibly valuable. It's a perspective that uh, the administration really needs to, to have and be paying attention to because you're the ones meeting our students where they're at. You're the ones meeting students most closely and in a continuing kind of way. And you have a perspective in terms of how the institution could best serve student needs that nobody else really has. Um, and if our mission at the end of the day is all about teaching and learning, um, I would think that perspective needs to be front and center in the decisions that are made across the institution. But again, from my experience, it's very easy for administrators to, to kind of lose that perspective because of the pressures that are on them 
Um, and those pressures are enormous and getting more intense, you know, as the, as the, the months, um, the months go by. So, um, thank you for your honesty, uh, in terms of, of responding to that. Uh, let me ask you what sorts of things each of you are doing. Jen, you've talked about that you're using technology to a greater extent to personalize the learning experience. And I know as we, as we discussed, Flipgrid is just one of many tools. Um, Tom, you're, you are, um, uh, you're badged <laughs> in flipped learning, which means you've been recognized worldwide for your expertise um, as a flipped learning educator. I think that's very cool. Um, so what sorts of other things are you doing to ensure that you remain relevant uh, educator? And are there any trends or developments in the world of teaching and learning that you're following and that you're, you're especially excited about? This is your wheelhouse, Jen. You run with this one. <laughs> um, I, I think the big umbrella term for me would be accessibility. And I think of that in two-prong approach regarding you know, differences. Um, neurodiversity, learning differences. Um, so using technology to create greater access, but also using accessibility regarding socioeconomic status and access to education. As I said earlier, I think, you know, education can be a great equalizer and it's empowering. Um, so when I think about it globally, I think about who still has access and who does not, well more, who still does not, and how can we get it to them? Um, so I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to stay abreast of that. I'm trying to better understand it because I want to work harder to remove those barriers and, um, and have a more global perspective on accessibility. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, a, a very significant um, trend that we all need to have on the radar. Um, and, and Jen, are there some, we talked about Flipgrid, but are there some other tools that you have found uh, that you think are particularly effective that others ought to know about in terms of um, uh, addressing accessibility issues in how you, you approach teaching and learning? Yeah, I think it's, um, so I, Yes, one is really simple, videotaping and using closed caption, right? I know it sounds small, but it's like that gives, then a student can watch it at any time, wherever they are in the world. The closed caption, you know, ideally can be available in multiple languages. That's a really simple tool. Another tool though and is so, like a- Well, can I, can I stop you a second? Yeah. So again, for somebody who's, who's maybe a new educator, um, how do you do that? It, so we teach at Bay Path using Canvas. Is that is that something that is available within the Canvas learning platform, or do you have to do that in another? Great, way? I'm using it in Screencastomatic, so I will videotape myself um, and then uh, review. This is the most painful part: is then listening to yourself, and it, um, Screencastomatic generates much of the closed captions, but you can, you go through and edit them. So it does not embed um, cool. punctuation. Screen, screen screencastomatic yeah, is what I use for my videos. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then um, the other tools, I would say when you're in Zoom, so Zoom is what I'm using to meet with students. Um, I like to use engagement tools. So using the polling, using, you know, while you're teaching, using polling, the chat button, if it's a small class, um, you can use that effectively as well. Um, so I, I think I, I think very carefully about how can, what are the multiple ways I can get students engaged in them, um, in the learning. And then I also use exit tickets, meaning, um, so I'll take an exit survey, I usually use Google Forms for that. And that gives me the data about their their learning and maybe any possible misconceptions that they may have. And so that's that's an interesting idea. An exit ticket means they have to do that in order to exit the class? Yeah, so I leave um, time or I'll put it, if it's an asynchronous class, it's just kind of there waiting for them. So after they've completed the learning of 
where they will click on what says exit ticket, takes them to a Google form and ask them, you know, what was a key learning? What was something you were struggling with? Um, any other information? Um, so I kind of have, um, and I always have, like I have the learning objectives up top to remind them what were the key learning objectives. How did they engage with those? And then um, what are they having difficulty with? So then that in, then can inform me when I do like a recap video or when I start the class the next week. Boy, what a great idea. Oh, thank you for sharing, sharing those. Uh, Tom, what about you? I think Jen hit the nail on the head in, in terms of accessibility and equity and accessibility. Because if, if we take a step back and realize that there are many students without reliable internet connections, uh, actually reliable internet connections at all, never mind the high bandwidth that's needed to stream video and engage in real-time Zooms, then what good is everything else we do if some of our students can't even log on to do it? So I, I think that needs to be at the forefront of our mind. What I would add is the importance of relationships. My number one fear with this migration to a more remote environment across higher ed is that we'll lose the tangible interpersonal relationships with our students. It's so easy. I mean, look at all of the social media trends, uh, you know, especially among teenagers and young people. It's so easy to lose our human connection when we're in a, a remote online environment. So most of what I'm focusing on this semester is just creating and fostering and maintaining relationships with my students and trying to give them space in the online environment to uh, become a learning community amongst themselves too, to develop a cohort community, a sense of community that way. Mm, boy, great, great suggestions for anybody listening who's looking to um, uh, to make sure that the learning experience uh, retains that human human connection, which I agree is is so very very important. So I want to end with a signature question that we ask of every guest who comes on in Genius U, and you've both talked about uh, things that that address this. So I'm going to ask you to kind of go up to the balcony and maybe take another run at it. Um, so the question is, what do you see ahead for higher ed that we all need to be paying more attention to right now? And thinking about the institutional level, what needs to be on the radar of our institutions and why? So as you consider what you are experiencing in the classroom, what you've learned and what you're seeing on the part of our students, and how they're doing, and you look to the future. Um, what advice? I guess let me, maybe I'll I'll put a little bit uh, differently. What advice would you have for the presidents and the provosts uh, at colleges and universities around the country, in terms of what needs to be front and center on their their agenda? Jen. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll go first I, if you want, but you're welcome sure. to if you'd like. Sure. Um, I think the presidents um, and administration of higher institutions should get ready for students that are about to demand for better. And um, oh boy, so what? So what do you mean by that? Well, I think um, I think we're placating students currently, possibly who are paying very high tuition, who um, and unless we think um, in an innovative way, I think we can provide high quality education and see each student and provide feedback, but it's going to have to be done differently. And I think students are going to demand that, especially when this pandemic is over or maybe even if it continues for too long. And I think they deserve better. I think we can do better, um, and I think they deserve better. And by do better, can you talk a little bit more about what do you mean? What should we do better? Um, like Tom was thinking, you know, accessibility. Let's make sure every okay. student has access, um, that they have what they need to learn. Um, are there institutional barriers like we were talking about earlier? Are there barriers that we're not seeing and we're not recognizing? Um, and, the, and we need to hear, we can only see those, like we were saying earlier, and you were made to, you know, we're in a bubble at times. So 
what are students, what are the barriers that are being created for students in this current situation that we're not recognizing? And how do we restructure to remove those? Mm, okay, Tom, you get the last word, I guess. <laughs> so um, higher ed has a history of serving society in two main ways. You know, we educate individuals to give them the tools and credentials to be successful in their lives. And we better society by applying our training. So advances in medicine and technology and aeronautics and all of that. That's what the academics are doing when they're not in the classroom. In my humble opinion, higher ed for many, many, many years now has focused far too much on the latter and not enough on the former. Uh, education has taken a backseat to personal success in one's own discipline and institutional success and reputation in having scientists and academics on their payroll. So much in line with what Jen said, I think we need to return to the basics and go back to serving the individual, to making sure that our students are learning what they need to learn in our classroom. And that doesn't mean that we make sure we've presented adequate information. I'm talking about testing real genuine learning that our students understand the material that we've conveyed and that they're going to retain it. And the last thing I'll say that's far more applicable to the new normal that we're in now is I, I'm tired of the term online learning. And every time I get a soapbox, I am advocating that we begin referring to it as learning online. Because in, it's very mm -hmm. phrasing in online learning, it's the online that comes first. And that couldn't be any further mm -hmm. from the truth. We need to apply our training as educators to figure out what our students need to learn from us. That's priority number one. And then we figure out how to accomplish that online. So I, I just hope that we all embrace a learning online philosophy. Mm, boy, thank you for that uh, important note, note to end on. So I am so grateful to each of you. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, and uh, I, I wish each of you all the best as you embark on this academic year. As I said at the outset, your students are so fortunate. Uh, to have you in the classroom with them. And uh, so may all be well as you uh, go into the year. Thank you very much, Melissa. Yes, thank you so much for having us.